Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey guys, it's Johnny, and welcome to episode 232 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I am in Tbilisi, Georgia, with Brent and Michael. Welcome to the show. Hey, Johnny. Nice to be here. Very nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited because in 232 episodes, we've only had on a few couples. There's not that many digital nomad couples. And I think we know them all. Yeah. <laughs> and you're our first gay couple. So thank you for representing. Score for us. We were a little surprised when we set out on the digital nomad journey. Um, we, were, we thought there would be more LGBT folks than there are. I mean, there are more, more the longer we do that. The longer we do this, the more we run into people. But we're a little surprised by that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have a few gay friends. I, I met a few lesbian, like, digital nomad travelers as well. But it's not – I mean, I grew up in San Francisco, so maybe I'm a bit biased. But it's definitely not a big part, you know, like not a big percentage. We've noticed the same thing, and, and we've really been surprised by it. And we've tried to figure out exactly why it is. I don't know that we've – quite come to any conclusions about that. Although I think we want to be sort of emissaries to say to people, look, you can do this. We haven't experienced any discrimination from digital nomads, at least on that issue. And it doesn't feel like, I mean, if you are careful as you travel the world, as I'm sure you know, I mean, there are things everybody needs to be aware of. And we always do research countries in terms of their attitudes about LGBT folks um, before we go anywhere. But we haven't experienced anything. It, the world is a lot less scary than you might think for a gay couple, even sort of like a, a relatively out gay couple. Well, and to the contrary, we've actually been surprised that the fact that we're a gay couple is almost usually the least notable thing about us to our fe fellow digital nomads. It almost never comes up. People don't have a lot of questions. Digital nomads are just such a diverse, interesting, open group of people that it's like, yeah, you're, you're gay. You've got brown hair. So what? Yeah. Well, I don't think either of you have brown hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. One of us has no hair. Yeah. But actually, that's another uh, unique kind of a point of you guys. You're a bit older. Definitely. I think we've run into a few other digital nomads our age. Um, we're in our 50s, and um, yeah, it's definitely a younger group. Honestly, when we first set out, um, I was thinking that digital nomading would be like everything else I've done in my life, where people divide into different tables, like the lunch in high school, there's the cool kids table and the geek table and all of that. And I have been pleasantly surprised that that really isn't the case among digital nomads. And some of our friends that we feel the closest to are sort of the least like us superficially. They're not our age, you know, and, and that's great. I think that's one of the strengths about it. I think there's only one place I've been to out of all my nomading where it feels very clicky, almost like high school again. Ooh, where? Chenggu, Bali. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why I really didn't like it there. I've not heard a lot of good things about Chenggu. We have a couple friends who've been there and everything they've said about us made us not want to go. Going back to the emissary thing, along with the LGBT thing, we want to communicate to people our age that this is something they should totally consider. They should get out in the world and do this. In fact, a lot of times they've got more financial resources. They've got a job where they're more able to say to their boss, I'd like to be location independent. Kids are out of the house. If, if they had them, they're no longer at home. Yeah, and how did you, you two get started? So we had talked about this for a long time. Uh, my father's elderly, and we wanted to wait until sort of things were settled. He was in assisted living and all of that. Um, we talked about it for a long time, and we always sort of thought of it as something we would do eventually. 
then Donald Trump was elected and we sort of looked at each other and thought, this is a good time to leave the United States since it seems like civilization is collapsing. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus. But sometimes I wonder if that hadn't happened, would we have sat on our butts forever? Would we ever? Because, I mean, you know, we owned a house and we had a strong social network in Seattle and it took some effort to overcome the inertia. We had a settled life. Fortunately, we both already had uh, remote jobs. We're both writers. I'm a screenwriter and a novelist, and Michael is a novelist. So that part was easy, but the rest of it, we were sort of entrenched, and so it took sort of something to slap us across the face. Uh, I'm not saying that the election of Donald Trump was in any way a good thing, because it wasn't, but for us personally, it was a good reason to leave the country. Well, ironically for me, it was almost bringing my life full circle because in my 20s, after I graduated from college, I took off and I lived in Australia and New Zealand for two years and almost kept doing that. I almost went to Japan to teach English as a second language, but finally decided, no, I'm going to come back and try and make it as a writer. So stepping back into this, while some of the technology has changed and the terminology has changed, you know, it's no longer backpackers and hostels, it's digital nomads and co-working and co-living. Uh, part of it feels very familiar and, and very much like coming home for me. That's nice. Actually, one funny thing about the digital nomad movement is we really like to think that we are completely different. We're pioneers. You know, we're the first like to travel and live abroad and work abroad. I'm sure all the expats, especially the older ones, you know, or the back, you know, people that backpacked uh, 50 years ago, they're like. You know, you guys have a smartphone now and it's a laptop, hilarious. but really you're doing the same thing as us. It's hilarious. It's so true. It's funny. I, I feel like I'm different from, from maybe most digital nomads and from Michael in another way in that I'm not a particularly adventurous person. I never saw myself as a risk taker. I still don't like to take big risks. I'm somewhat cautious in life. And I feel like I can be an emissary to the people who maybe think, oh, that's too much for me. Because my experience these last two years has been that the world is so not a scary place. And because of these changes in technology that we're talking about, it is easier to do than, it, than it's ever been. Um, and there's really nothing to be afraid of. I mean, when I confronted the fears I had, Michael had been doing this. He had done this before, as he said. And, and I did think when we set out two years ago, this is sort of subtext to the conversation. What if one of us likes it? And by that, I mean, what if Michael liked it and I didn't? You know, what do we do then? You know, we're a couple and we're committed. And, and it turns out he really, really, really liked it right away. But fortunately, I did too. And I, and I, I was surprised myself because it is somewhat different than how I see myself. But then I don't, I think the, the bigger answer is the world just isn't the scary place that I thought it was. This is so much easier than I thought it was. So was it more that it wasn't as scary uh, as you thought it was, or did you end up liking certain aspects of it? Like, what, what was it that just kind of sold you on this lifestyle? Gosh, so much of it. I mean, I, I feel like we really can be ambassadors because just the whole idea, when the concept is presented to you, everything you own, you carry with you. So if you buy something new, you have to get rid of something old. And on one hand, you think, I don't want to get rid of things. I like my things. But once you start doing it, it is just so liberating that everything is intentional in your life. And you know, you when everything you buy to eat is intentional. And so everything becomes a conscious choice. And for me, I found that a revelation. It's just wonderful. And life, I mean, so many of our friends back in Seattle, they say, gosh, that's really exciting what you're doing. We love what you're doing. I could never do that. That's, that's, it, it sounds too stressful. And I, I want to say the reality is our life is so much less stressful now than it was when we lived in Seattle because, you know, A, it's a hectic, crazy, congested city, and B, it's a 
incredibly expensive city, so we had to work our asses off in order to pay for our lifestyle. Now, I just did our budget for an article on our blog, and we're spending about half of what we spent in Seattle. And I don't feel like we're depriving ourselves. That's two months of this year is going to be spent on a cruise ship. We spent time in Switzerland and in Italy. And so we're spending time in expensive countries, not just cheaper countries. And we're doing traveling the world, meeting amazing people, having fantastic experiences for half what we were spending. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm, it still astounds me. No, I mean, a lot of listeners haven't made the movie yet. They're yeah. literally living back home maybe in Seattle, maybe you know, with a cushy job. Leave <sighs> now, get up and go. And you know, the funny thing is once they, it's almost bad when people do start going because they'll binge listen when they're at their office back home. And as soon as they start traveling, they'll listen for some tips. But then after a while, they're like, all right, well, I, you know, I already know what I'm doing. So they won't listen again until they're back home on vacation or something. <laughs> so sometimes I have people saying like, like, oh, yeah, I listened to the first 180 episodes, I moved to Chiang Mai, and then I haven't listened to any of the new ones yet. But like, it's, it's on my backlog for my next flight. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The other thing about people back home and what they don't understand about this lifestyle is a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to give up my things and I want my own space. Cause we talk about co-living and how you have a smaller space, you know, you've got your, your bedroom. Sometimes you share a bathroom, you share a kitchen. And the thing I always try and drive home to people is yes, you're giving up a little of that personal space, but you're gaining the whole world. I mean, you, you get to go live in Switzerland and have the Swiss Alps be your backyard instead of just what you know in Seattle. And usually in co-living people are off doing so many different things that you find plenty of that time to have your own space. Yes, but as the more neurotic of the two of us, it is possible also to have that personal space and you just make that a priority. You know, I prefer an ensuite apartment. You know, I want a bedroom with a bathroom attached and you just that I know what I like now. And so we make a point to do that. And, you know, we spend maybe a third of our time in co-living, which is great. You know, we get to know people, we enjoy their company. Um, we're part of their lives. We get to know each other, but then we usually make a point maybe to have an apartment where it's just us. Or, uh, you know, and then we have that personal time where can we sort of recharge or we're sort of introverts. And so what is important to you, you just make it a priority. And it's really not that hard because these options exist. Yeah, especially now with Airbnb, because this would have been much harder even five, definitely 10 years ago. What wouldn't have been harder five or 10 years ago or before the advent of the iPhone? I mean, it's so amazing that I can go on and book all of our reservations, you know, take care of the airline reservations, figure out where the train is going, uh, contact the Airbnb host to say that we're coming later, all from the one device. I mean, the iPhone is completely change things. And I sort of want to go back to something you're talking before about the difference between backpackers and digital nomads, since I have done both. And to me, it feels like, the, yes, they did things that we're doing the same things. But I do feel like digital nomads are different in the sense that some of us are, are tend to go a little bit slower than backpackers did, anywhere from one to three months. And I feel like you get a much better sense of a place than I ever did as a backpacker. Backpacker usually wasn't there longer than a week before I was off going somewhere else. And ironically, I'm, meeting, I'm reading Nomadic Matt's uh, memoir right now, and he's talking about a, in a hostile situation, you get to know somebody very quickly, but then you go your own way, and then you might not ever see them again. One of the things we've discovered in our second year of being digital nomads is that you actually develop a sense of community with other digital nomads, both because of social media, you can stay in touch with them, and B, there are digital nomad hubs, so you tend to hook up with your friends again, and you feel like you've got that, that community and that network of people that 
you didn't really when you were a backpacker. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of events like the Nomad Summit every year, the Nom- even the Nomad Cruise, that's a reunion for a lot of digital nomads, especially people that met on you know at the conferences or on the trips. And I probably see the same people like a few times every year, even more than some of my friends that I lived that lived in the same state as me, just because we have so much free time, we have so much freedom. And we all love traveling. We all want to go to the same events, but also just to the same new new hotspots. Isn't that hilarious? I mean, I do feel like my digital nomads friends, some of them I spend more quality time with them than my good friends back in Seattle. Because back in the United States, being busy is like a status symbol. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, you know, when can we meet? Okay, well, four weeks from today, we'll meet for lunch. And it's like... When you're, on, when you're on the road, you see somebody, you immediately have dinner, then you have dinner the next night, and then you go on a road trip two days later. And so you spend quality time. But as Michael says, it that was the other thing we were worried about, that, that we would be isolated, we would feel lonely, we wouldn't be connected to a community. And really, we are far more socially active now. We feel far more connected by choice. I mean, by choice, it's far more connected than we ever did before, which is another really ironic thing. And it's so interesting, like every time, every, pretty much every person we meet while traveling has an incredible story. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of people that I met back home and, you know, you talk to them for five minutes and you realize, like, they've never done anything interesting in their life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is, uh, people, of digital nomad friends have warned me when you go home, so much will have happened to you in the past six or 12 months, but people's lives are basically the same. Not that they haven't changed and not that interesting things haven't happened, but they haven't gone through the same personal change maybe that you have. And uh, I've noticed that, and, and that's interesting. But that isn't true, as you said, of other digital nomads. Even So we're in Tbilisi, Republic of Georgia right now, and the reason why we came here is we were meeting a couple of friends from last year. And it's been fascinating just spending time with them and you sort of get a snapshot of people. You know, we were with them a year ago. We've stayed in touch over the year, but now we see them again, and we, we've got a whole year's worth of change and experience to go over, and it's fun. You know, one, one person is, is still in her 20s, and it, it's really fun to see what she's discovering about you know, her direction in life and the things she's discovered about herself. I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, I, I really love, like, this community. And, like, kind of on uh, Michael's point about backpacking is I think it's a – it's a good good first step to kind of like sample the world, but I highly encourage everyone, even if you were just going to do a backpacking trip, to first, you know, give yourself some leeway and spend more time in places you like, or at least make a note and say, even though I can check off that I've been there, like I haven't really been there. So, you know, you can always go back and say, okay, I'm going to spend one to three months here now. But even after... Even after one to three months, Michael mentioned that one to three months, there's a term for what we do, slow mad as opposed to nomad, that you stay in one country or one city anywhere from from one to three months. But I love it because even if you stay three months in a place, there's still like three things that I really wanted to do that I never got to do. So I think exactly what you're saying, I think, well, we'll have to come back. We'll just have to come back sometime. Well, you were talking about people making taking making plans to make trips and going somewhere and i always i don't know what percentage of your your listeners are americans but i always feel really sad for americans because as you travel and you see the rest of the world and even even outside the digital nomad community europeans you know they get four or six weeks worth of vacation so they can go and do that and see a place in a little bit more in depth but as Americans, it feels like we've been sold a, a bill of goods that you know your life has to be all about work and being a digital nomad 
really helps break you out of that mindset and lets you see you know, other ways of living and, and how much of the world there is to get out there and see. Yeah, definitely. And I think even like geographically in the U.S., it takes so long to get to other countries, especially to Asia, to Europe, where if we have a two-week holiday, yeah. you know, four of those days are just for travel. And then another four days is, you know, being jet lagged. And, you know, so we really have a, a week of, of traveling. And usually, you know, we try to pack in as much as we can. And it sucks. I think when people try to understand what we do, the peg that they have to hang it on is being on holiday or being on vacation. And it's not that. Because when you're on vacation, it is stressful. You're trying to see as much as possible. And it's also really expensive. And that isn't true of digital nomading. And I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that people should maybe test it if they're unsure. Give it a try for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But the big secret about all of this is if you're not paying rent or mortgage, that money that you would have been paying there is freed up. And, you know, what, what were the numbers? I think we spend with our, with our mortgage in Seattle our daily utilities and everything was something like $120 a day just to live in a house, which was not a big house. And I think about that now and, and we, you know, our rent is usually 15, maybe 20, maybe $30 a day. So even when you throw in food and travel and every other expense, we're still under what we were just paying to have a house over our heads. And when you have that kind of freedom, financial freedom, it gives you sort of a psychological freedom too. You're, you're, you're less stressed. You're not worried about money. You don't feel the urgency that you have to see absolutely everything. We're just making, we're going to Rome uh, later this year and we're making the arrangements. And, and it's nice because it doesn't feel like we have to, oh, we don't have to do the Vatican Museum. We don't have to do everything all at once. If we don't get to it, eh, we'll see it later. Next time we're back in Rome, we'll see it next week, you know, however long we want to stay. Everything's just much more casual and peaceful. Well, the other thing following up on that that a digital nomad has let me discover is that once you get away from the must-see tourist sites of going to Paris and seeing the Eiffel Tower or going to London because you've just got those two weeks and you allow yourself to explore and have flexibility, you start to discover things like a place in Matera or in southern Italy called Matera where there's something called the Sassi or you go to Bulgaria and discover Bansko or here in Tbilisi, you know, never would have dreamed of coming to Tbilisi in, in our old life, you know, too far away, too difficult to get to. And now that we're here and it's this small size city that, you know, you just don't think of as being a big tourist destination, there's all these amazing, wonderful things here that you get to discover. And that is a huge part of the digital nomad lifestyle. Yeah. By far, my favorite thing about this type of travel is I can go and do a tour. And then the very next day, instead of being exhausted and like, you know, having to wake up again at five or six in the morning to do another tour. And that we're getting on a bus for 18 hours or on a flight or something. Now, what I do is I'll have one day of touristy stuff. And then the very next day, I'll sit in a coffee shop. I'll write a blog post. I'll edit my, you know, upload my, my, my photos and edit my, my videos. And I love it. It's like the best just kind of relaxation. And if I want to, you know, then the next day or the day after, I can go do another touristy thing. It is the way to travel. It absolutely is. And, and I mean, you can also, I mean, we were in Florence last year and it was the sort of tourist crush and it was just, you know, everybody had been talking about, we'd never been before and everybody talked about how wonderful Florence is. But there's so many people there that it, it just made the whole experience exhausting and not that exciting. And so you can contrast these, uh, frankly, I don't think I'm ever going to go anywhere ever again during the tourist crush ever. I will avoid that for the rest of my life. 
But it's great that you can just sort of casually, you know, you can travel off season, you can take a week off, as you say. Well, following up on what you just said, Johnny, I remember when we used to have regular vacations, you know, the two-week period, you'd go and you'd try and cram as much in. And by the second week, you know, the last couple of days, you're like, okay, I guess it's time to go see Notre Dame. That's going to be great. And you go there and you're tired and you don't really appreciate it. You're on European cathedral overload and, and all the rest of it. And you, you don't get to take it in. Whereas you just said, you go into your tour, you see a couple things, you come back, you write about it, you think about it, you digest it, you remember it so much more and, and appreciate it so much more. Yeah. And like it, I think the thing that sucks the most about fast travel is it all blends together, mm-hmm. especially when you do, yeah, you, like you're seeing multiple cathedrals, multiple cities, multiple countries, and you're like, yeah, did that? Ha- did I go to that restaurant in, was it Italy or France or Greece? And the worst thing that happens, and I've, I've, I've seen so many people devastated by this, as I'll be at a hostel somewhere, and somebody would have lost their camera or their phone broke or something, and they're like, oh my God, all my photos for the last three months are gone and I can see why they're stressed, you know, cause it sucks. And in the hypological, you know, uh, like mine and mine, I'm like, Oh, like, did, did you back it up? Is it on the cloud? Is it on yeah, yeah. Google photos? Like, did, like, didn't you upload them to Facebook? Like, it's okay. And they're like, no, like I haven't had time to even go through them. And the worst thing is because it's all blur too, they don't even remember those, like where they've been. So like, it's literally them, going for three, four months, and then going back to normal life. And when they hate their normal life, they have time again, they slowly go through their photos. It is true, though. I have noticed more and more digital nomads. As people are getting into travel blogging, there is that whole, oh, we need to stop for Instagram. And sometimes I think, and we do that too, and sometimes I think, you know, is this content creation or is this travel? I think we could all uh, stand to pause more and actually experience it in the moment. But, you know, we're all creating content now, and it is a conundrum. My, like my kind of trick is I will spend two seconds to take that one or two photos mm-hmm. and then I put my phone away for mm-hmm. the rest of the time. Like mm-hmm. for dinner, I, like if it's a nice, uh, you know, meal, like we had, we had a Lolita the other night, I'll definitely take a photo because it's mm-hmm. nice to remember that. But then I think if you spend more than a few seconds taking photos, food's getting cold, yep. it's, you know, it's getting annoying for everyone. <laughs> we uh, had burgers a couple weeks ago somewhere down here in the Vake neighborhood and we're eating our burgers and I looked over and these two other guys who probably were digital nomads had their meals out and I swear to God, they spent 15 minutes positioning it and taking the perfect picture. I remember thinking, your food is going to be ice cold by the time you get to it. Okay, but everybody, there were three tables in that restaurant, and everybody, including us, was taking photographs of their food. It was, you know, you know you're in Tbilisi when. Uh, well, so the funny thing is in the U.S., especially in high, high turnover places like New York, they say that the restaurants are now losing money because they're losing an entire seating per night. As people take photos of their food. Yeah, because, you know, before the, the average kind of sit time during, was, you know, let's say 40 minutes. You know, they come in, they sit down, they order, they eat, they leave. Now, because of the That's photos, That's it's added 15, 20 minutes. Frankly, I think presentations are getting better too, though. You know, it's like you no longer, it actually looks like the photo on the, what used to be the magazine, you know, they want, because they know what everybody's up to. It's funny, the other thing about digital nomading, I think you also are far more likely to actually meet local people to be integrated into the community because you are integrated into the community and you buy fruit from the same person every day and you eat in the same cafe. And it's not just, you know, you always sort of meet your tour guide, but they're paid to be charming and interested in your anecdotes. When you're a nomad, 
you know, you are meeting other digital nomads, but you're also almost always, you, you, we, we make friends with local people too. And sometimes there are gay folks and, and that's always interesting getting insight into what it's like for other gay people. That's always a, that's been an education in and of itself, hearing from their point of view. Um, and it feels like you can't really get that experience when you travel in a traditional holiday kind of way. That's a break from your life. Whereas this is our life and our home literally is Tbilisi, Georgia for three months or however long we're going to be here. And it is our home. And I, and I mean, I read somewhere that for a place or a person, you need to encounter them three times for them to be familiar. The first time, you know, they're unfamiliar. The second time, it's like, oh, I recognize that person and or that this place. And then the third time, it actually feels familiar and you have that feeling of affection and that feeling of connection. And it is remarkable. We keep saying this to each other, it's remarkable how quickly it feels once you sort of let go. And, and I think we have let go because we've sold our house and we don't have that, those ties anymore. So once you've let go, it becomes very easy to quickly become comfortable with other places and other people, which is fantastic. Following up on something Brent said and changing the topic a little bit and bringing it back to why you had us on the show, uh, being here in Tbilisi um, as a gay couple has been interesting and has been different from any other place we've been because this is probably the least gay tolerant country that we've been to. They've tried to have uh, pride here a couple of times and it's either ended in violence or ended because of threats, uh, including bombing threats. And um, people here are definitely worried about being out. They're not able to be out. Um, we've been told they don't even want to be seen with Americans. Men don't want to be seen with other Americans because that can be seen as sort of strange. And it's hard for people to be out to their families. Uh, we're actually going to meet with Tbilisi Pride, which is a local gay rights group here, uh, to talk with them about it. And we've even, we heard so many different things before we got here. We were cautious when we arrived. I had a cab driver quizzing me the other night and I was by myself and it was late at night and he was he wasn't trying to figure out if I was gay or not. He was just asking me personal questions that, you know, sometimes come up with your cab driver. And, and for the first time in forever, I, you know, did not come out to him. I just sort of kept that information to myself. And that was a really weird feeling. And that made me very empathetic to what it's like to be a, a local um, Georgian LGBT person where you literally have to worry about your, your physical safety. And we hope that We've decided we're, I mean, we're not going to take any stupid chances, but we're going to be out as possible and hope that in doing that, um, we can maybe move things a little bit better, get the, the locals who aren't gay seeing a gay couple and thinking, oh, okay, this isn't what I thought it was. They're not as weird as I imagined them to be. I, I asked uh, another guest a few episodes ago, uh, Nathan, that about being gay in Ukraine, but also here. And he said that like, from his experience, as a tourist, it was actually much different than as a local. And, you know, a big part of that is just, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, they don't live here. That's a different culture. We're open to it. Um, but then if you are a local Ukrainian guy or a local Georgian guy and you're gay, it, it, your life becomes very hard. Yeah, we have a friend, a gay friend who has been dating in town, but he said it's impossible to go out on a date with a Georgian man because they don't, as Michael said, being seen with a Western person in a restaurant, if they were seen by friends or family, um, it would be suspicious. And so, but it's more than that. It, it almost feels like, and I don't mean to, hmm, I don't want to be judgy, but it does feel exactly what the United States felt like to me 30 years ago, that a level of consciousness, this sounds arrogant, I don't mean to sound like that, but it, it does feel like because of the oppression and because of family disapproval, there, there are these pressures, and it does feel like, so therefore things are repressed. And 
and but it does because the world is so different you know the the reoccurring theme of this episode and probably a lot of your episodes is how all these technological changes are, are changing everything and it does feel like these people have contact with us they have contact with stuff online and there is a consciousness and it's, and it's funny we've met three or four gay folks gay georgian folks and it is very strange i guess it is a little different from my experience of myself 30 years ago because there isn't quite the shame because they are aware of the concept of being out but they're but at the same time they're aware of the practical realities of their life like you know one guy said my parents know that i'm gay my sister knows I, he lives with them but i couldn't ever talk about it so they've got like a fully formed identity as a gay person out and proud but not really i mean proud but not out i guess i should say which i think is interesting and i think what that says to me is the pace of change here is going to be a lot faster than it was 30 years ago. It's also really sobering knowing that, you know, as a, as a gay man, as a gay couple, we can up and go. We can take off whenever we're yeah. done, ready to go. And, and these folks can't. And as a digital nomad traveling the world, you see that in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, the, the lady we had dinner with the other night, you know, she really dreamed of, of traveling. And yet, you know, she, she's Georgian. And so her, her opportunities aren't as great, you know, to travel with her passport. And frankly, the finances are so much more difficult when you make a, a Georgian wage. And in Vietnam, there was a young lady we got to know, and she was really hopeful to get a visa to uh, Sweden. And she was, you know, waiting for weeks to find out if she was going to get approved. And as an American, it's really sobering and good for you to know that other people don't have all of those, those privileges that we do. Even as gay men who face discrimination, you know, back in the day, we come here and we're just so incredibly privileged. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. And I, I like, I feel the same for me too. Like being able to leave a country if I don't feel welcome here is a great feeling. You know, having the financial means, but also to be able to work remotely and not have any physical attachments. It, it's, it's a nice feeling. It is, you know, oftentimes digital nomads will talk about, oh, it's such a cheap place to live. And we say this too, you know, it's so much cheaper than Seattle. And, and on one hand, it is great when you have a Western income and you move to some of these poor countries. It is great for us. But then you think about it from the point of view of the local who's trying, maybe wants to leave, has ambitions to go to Europe. It's hard enough to leave your country anyway. I mean, it takes cojones of steel. And I mean, it takes ambition and drive and, and, and all of that. But then you think, well, you would also need four times the amount of money. You know, how long would it take to save up that, am that amount of money? And then there are, the, as Michael says, the passport issues. A lot of these countries, it's so easy for us as Americans. We can go almost anywhere. Can't go to Cuba and Iran. We can go everywhere else. Whereas, you know, they can't. They can often not. They have to apply again and again and again and get rejected. We just went to Armenia and we had a, a, a driver who was taking us there, a local driver. And at one point he was, as we were getting ready to cross the Armenian border, he was holding my passport and he was looking at it and he was literally saying, this is so beautiful. I mean, and he was sort of almost caressing it and looking at the, you know, the embossed emblem. And you could just see sort of the yearning on his face and, and my realizing um, just what he couldn't do that I could do. Um, it, it's... It's sort of, I don't want to say the darker side of being a digital nomad, because I don't think it's dark. I think it's actually good. It's good for us to see this. It's good for us to go out and talk about it. And I do think it can be inspiring to meet, you know, other people who are traveling and, and get them, you know, thinking, well, maybe I can find a way to do this. Yeah. If nothing else, it, we're helping them with their English. And <laughs> it's like, it sounds silly, but that really is the key. It like, it's the key to... I don't want to say escape, you know, mm. like the, a life that you were born into, you know, maybe that is 
with low wages or just without as much freedom. But it really like in in Ukraine, but I would imagine pretty much anywhere else, the people that I met who spoke English like decently always made more than double yeah. what, what other people made. Sometimes triple. Even like the barber shops that you know in Ukraine, if someone. It, I would go to places and you know I have no hair so it's I just go to the cheapest one I can find. If someone you know is charging $2 or $3 for a haircut, there's they don't speak English. Like I go in and I just gesture or speak terrible Russian. And then if I go somewhere with and they speak English, I, I'm like, oh man, it's going to be 15 bucks. I know it. <laughs> it's another way in which this whole experience. I guess I was afraid of traveling to countries where I didn't speak the language or what would that be? It'll be confusing. It'll be awkward. And the reality, unfortunately, I mean, it's great for us, but it is unfortunately true that if you are an English speaker, you can travel almost anywhere in the world. And, you know, usually everybody under 30 speaks English or at least someone under 30 will speak English. And, you know, if not, then you can just translate it on your phone. The other interesting thing, so we had this driver that we went into Armenia. There were four of us, Michael and myself and two of our friends, and he asked, you know, we thought beforehand, are we going to tell him we're gay? We're we going to tell him a couple. Well, let's just, you know, I don't want to be stranded in Armenia. I don't want to be awkward for three days. Let's just not talk about it. But then once we were in the car, and, and ironically, he did immediately start asking us personal questions. This isn't the cab driver. This is our actual driver, the cab driver that Michael was talking about. This is our actual driver. And though, so we were sort of confronted, you know, we were sort of vague. And it was weird to go back into the closet after all these years. But then as the trip went on, you know, we're talking with our friends and it was interesting, you know, it just, we're talking about our lives, you know, talking and, and ha- we're having the comfort, you know, we've been together more than two decades, just the familiarity. We were sleeping in the same bed in different, in our different hotels is when we stopped for the night. And it was weird how often it sort of came up. And again, that's sort of a privilege. I don't really think about that. I'm just out and proud in most of the Western world. And and here I became more conscious of it. And then it did become sort of awkward. And then we want to hire him again. And we we never officially said, I mean, he's not, he was a sophisticated man. He was not a stupid man. He knew what was going on. But But we sent him a message when all was said and done. We said, you know, Thank you. You were great. By the way, you know, we'd like to hire you again. By the way, we, you know, we are a same-sex couple. I hope that's okay, just so there's no confusion. And, of course, he was, he was fine with it, or at least he said he was. Um, but it was interesting being pushed back into that, you know, partly for personal reasons. Like, I didn't want it to be awkward. I also didn't want him to be, you know, leave us stranded somewhere. I think that's a realistic concern. But it was an interesting experience. This is Johnny FD, and this week I want to tell you about a really cool money-saving travel hack with Pruvo. As you guys are probably aware, I stay at a lot of Airbnbs, but the biggest problem with Airbnb is the refund policies and cancellation policies are terrible. The best thing about booking with hotels is how amazing their cancellation policies are. With most hotels, you can get back 100% of your money even if you cancel a day or two before. So Provo takes advantage of this really amazing cancellation policy by tracking the prices to see if they go down between the time you had booked your hotel and the time you're actually staying. All you have to do is forward any hotel confirmation that you have to nomad at provo.net. That's nomad at provo.net. And that's it. You don't have to make an account. You don't have to sign up or anything. They will let you know if that price ends up dropping before before your stay, and they'll show you how much you can save. 
if you want, then you can create an account for them to automatically pull them out of your, your inbox, but you can just do it manually. You never even need to make an account if you don't want to. It's a great service. I've tried it myself. Just go through your Gmail or your email inbox right now and just start forwarding all your hotel confirmations that are upcoming to nomadapprovo.net. So I guess I have a question on that on that point because I, I have no personal experience with this. I wonder if it's kind of that you know, middle zone between like you know like everyone being okay with it and also like then everyone not being okay with it. Is it kind of at that point kind of like that don't ask don't tell point where like here, here, here in Georgia, Georgia, yeah. Well, I think there is really strong vehement anti-gay prejudice. I think. As you said earlier, it is a little different for Westerners because, well, first of all, you know, we're paying them. So it's like you're giving up financial interest by expressing your prejudice. But I mean, I just read a survey that 90% of Georgians say that uh, homosexuality is never acceptable. And I think in the United States now, it's down to like 35% say that. So there it is. I think these are real concerns. On the other hand, you know, we're in the city, we're dealing with people who speak English, as you said, which I think is a really big indicator of something. Um, and I do think there are exceptions made for Westerners in general. Well, I think the Western exception is huge, and that goes on in almost everything. I mean, we're, we're sort of exotic creatures when we show up. I mean, the gay thing aside, I have never been looked at as much as I have been here in Georgia. It's well, you do of, look like a young George Clooney. <laughs> really? I've, I've heard that somewhere. I'm not sure where. No, I mean, we just, there's something about the clothes we wear, the way we walk, that, that we just stand out, and we can be this sort of intense focus. And I think here in Georgia, it's, it's just more acceptable to openly look at, at people. But going back to the don't ask, don't tell part, no, I don't think Georgia has moved into the don't ask, don't tell part. Maybe more here in Tbilisi, that's the case. But it definitely talking with um, some of the locals and reading online and, and the violent reaction. I mean, there, there are gay bashings that are going on. Well, and the other thing that I think maybe a straight person wouldn't consider, when something does go wrong, you know, let's say we are beat up. Somebody thinks we're a couple. Because, I mean, we're two middle-aged men. We're relatively well-groomed. We're, you know, people, it's not crazy to think we're a couple. So we're beat up. I want, if something goes wrong, I want the authorities to take my side. I don't want them to take the side of the gay basher. Or if we're in an accident and Michael is in the hospital and I want to see him, I want the authorities to take my side and say and recognize the fact that, you know, I'm his husband and I want to see him. And I think that is a real risk in countries like this, that the authorities, when if the worst does happen, which it does happen from time to time, you want the authorities on your side, which it would be in any European country. It would be in most of the United States right now. Yeah. But I don't think it would be in most of Georgia. It definitely should be. I mean, there's no like to, to, like it. I think the logical thing is. If someone attacks someone else, regardless of why they attacked them, like they attacked them, like and that that's it. And I I, I can see that, especially you know maybe outside of the the city, that it's it's not acceptable right now. And actually, even with, I think they just their culture is so conservative, even yeah. with just normal like heterosexual dating, like it's. Yeah. It's. I, I remember. Uh, so in my Tbilisi blog post, I had a short section about dating in uh, in Georgia and and Tbilisi, and I wrote, you know, um, like the girls who are very conservative, and then I had a, a Georgian guy comment on it uh, on one of the local Facebook groups, and he wrote he writes this like five page like yeah. paragraph, and it really highlighted saying like you know like they are very protective of 
traditional family values in a sense, not like just in the U.S., like 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 to like a religious extreme here. Yeah. Well, and I, and I mean, I'm sure you've had the same conversation, but a lot of our friends have, you know, they experience daily sort of sexual harassment in in. It's a little bit like the consciousness we're talking about, the sort of the gay consciousness. That's not really – if you were to say rape culture, I think you would get a blank expression. I mean, I, I, that our consciousness has not been – there has been not been raised here in Georgia. And so there's not, not even really a peg to hang it on. It's just what men do to women. Men leer at women, and that's okay. And, and maybe it's not okay if he grabs her ass. You know, maybe it's okay if he grabs her ass, she can slap him. Maybe that's part of the code. But the code is not – no, it is never okay in any circumstance for a man to touch a woman unsolicited. You know, the, the whole notion of consent, that's, that's evolving here. That's, that's still embryonic here. And I, I want to feel optimistic about Georgia because seeing the economic changes and how the city of Tbilisi has changed so much, it's important for us as, you know, Westerners and, and you know, people who come from more stable countries to remember this is a country that was under the yoke of the Soviet Union for a long time, and then the the Iron Curtain came down. The Iron Curtain came down, and they struggled economically, and they they've had a civil war, and they had to fight with Russia. I mean, this is a country that, in many profound ways, has been fighting for its very survival for a long time. And when that happens, some of these other issues end up, you know, coming along more slowly. So I do think walking around Tbilisi, especially in the Vake and and Vera neighborhoods you do feel like you're in a Western country. And I really do think, having gotten to know some of the Georgians, I do think they will come along to those, those points of view. I do think they will evolve on those things. But it is, it is interesting, I mean, taking a step back, looking at a slightly bigger picture, you know, we're visitors. This is not our, I mean, it is our, I said it was our home earlier, but it is not our country. It's not our, our, our true home. And so you have to be respectful. So sort of the existential question of how do you maintain your own identity and keep your dignity and not compromise your own values while at the same time being respectful of local cultures and local traditions because that's not you know my job is not to come in and lecture people and tell them oh you must conform to my values my job is to be a guest here and be respectful of those values but at the same time hold on to my own values and it is so it's sort of again when i said being a digital nomad forces you to be intentional when you buy something you have to give something else up well that's sort of that that's a good metaphor for for all of this that you sort of have to give up part of your own identity a little bit. It doesn't feel like a compromise because you are also getting something in return, which is an honest cultural exchange and an exchange of identity. And, and it's, I mean, it, again, more than anything, it makes you aware of who you are and what is important to you and the things that you won't compromise on and the things that you realize, oh, well, that wasn't important at all. That I can totally let go. And, uh, and you sort of do that from top to bottom in your life, you know, what you carry, what you believe, what you eat, um, what you watch, what's important, what shows are important on TV, which, you know, you give up in order to go out with friends. And so your life from top to bottom becomes more intentional and more conscious. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I really like it. And actually, what you had mentioned about, like earlier, about every time you buy something, you have to give something up. Mm-hmm. I, I love these constraints. Mm-hmm. I think by not having constraints in your life, this that's when you lead to like like become a hoarder. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Like you know, a hoarder technically has more stuff than all of us, right? Combined, probably. So you would think that having more stuff would make you more happy, but it just that's the perfect example of having more is not better. I think it helps. You know, Michael said earlier that uh, we're in our 50s. Thanks a lot, Michael. Michael's in in his 50s. I'm in my (laughs) mid-40s. And I think it helps that I have often identified with millennial 
values all of my life. Uh, and it helps because, you know, that's the whole millennial thing, that experiences are worth way more than things. And I totally, I've thought that my whole life. I guess it's been in the back of my mind my whole life. But now it is just for me personally, maybe not for everybody, but for me personally, experiences are worth so much more than things. And if something is important, you know, you make that a priority, then that's the thing that you're willing to carry and it becomes intentional. But for the most part, there's just not that much. I would rather have experiences and relationships uh, and memories than any particular thing we gave up. Well, going back to the whole intentional aspect, we were never particularly materialistic people living in Seattle. I mean, I've just, I've never cared that much about clothes. We've never owned a new car in our life. Um, Our furniture wasn't particularly expensive. And yet when we decided to do this and we started downsizing, I was stunned by the amount of, of crap that we'd accumulated. I mean, I was just blown away by it. And we gave away some of the better stuff to people, but we had to have like the, the trash people come twice to haul away all the stuff that we didn't want. And years ago, there was one point where we were in between houses and we had to put our stuff in storage. And this sort of got us in the mindset for, for becoming digital nomad. We put all our stuff in storage. We lived in a friend's basement for a year. And then we, our new house was finally ready. We went and got our stuff and we opened up the storage locker and we were like, what I don't want any of this. I don't want any of this stuff, well, right? Before <laughs> we even got to that point, it was like, what the hell is in here? What is it that we put in here a year ago? And you open it up and it's like, it's just sort of astounding. And so not having that stuff weighing you down, both literally and metaphorically, is huge. I mean, I, I love that. Okay, but at the same time, we had an awesome house that we loved. And we had a cute little uh, Volkswagen Beetle that we loved. And I mean, it's true. We didn't... It's the only car we've loved. Well, I mean, it's true. You know, I guess you could say we weren't materialistic. But there were things... I mean, you know, you open one door, you have to close another door. And it was... So we gave up that awesome Echo ecological, you know, greenhouse that was part of a, you know, cool little development in the middle of Seattle. We gave that up, but now we get to stay in a different city, in a different place every one to three months. And, you know, we can live on a cruise ship for two months out of the year. What amazes me, though, is that I almost never think of those things we gave up. It rarely crosses my mind unless we're talking to other people about something. I mean, I just don't think about it because Honestly, I'm usually thinking about the things we're going to be doing while we're here in Tbilisi. And then it's like, oh, we're off to Rome. And then we're going to be on a cruise ship. And then we're, oh, we're going to be in Seattle for a month visiting our friends and family. And, oh, maybe we'll go to Mexico for next year. So, And yet it doesn't feel – I mean, just hearing you say that, it makes it, it makes it sound hectic. But it's not hectic because – Or exotic. Well, it is exotic. Well, it it's, it's funny – so I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a novelist and, and a screenwriter, and I'm getting – I'm in preparation for uh, a book coming out later this year, and so I'm doing, like, the, the media materials. And I, I did a, a little pitch sheet on five interesting things about Brent Hardinger, you know, that you could – that would be media angles. And I looked at it and it was done, and none of them were about – being a digital nomad. And it's like, oh, this should be a list of six things. That's like one of the most interesting things about me. But what I thought was interesting is it didn't even occur to me that that is any way unusual because this is this is the fabric of my life, you know, that everybody that I spend time around is either digital nomad or is a local in some so-called exotic country. But it doesn't feel strange or weird or exotic. And it's it's only been three years since we made this decision and I so I it's fresh enough that I remember what I was thinking and I I mean there was a when we decided to do this we had never even heard the term digital nomad and it was like we were in preparation and we saw that article in the New York Times and and Michael said digital nomad I think that's that's what we're going to be what was the article? Uh, there was an article about digital nomads in 2017 
um, was, that was the one before the one about Rome, right? It was right. just about the phenomena of being a digital nomad. But the fact is the term hasn't been around. I mean, I guess it's been around, but it hasn't been popularized really. I mean, co-living, that wasn't a thing four years ago. And, it, and so I, I am sort of pleased with myself. I think back, well, we just sort of made this massive leap, not really even knowing where we were going to live, how, you know, what it was going to be like. We just sort of did it. But at the same time, you know, that part was a little mysterious and stressful. So we can say to myself of three years ago, we can say it isn't mysterious and it isn't stressful. It is there are people there are already other people doing it. And it's not the thing you're afraid of at all. It's this awesome other thing that we've been talking about all. It's so funny. If you had told the Brenton Michael of 2017 that you're going to go live in a small mountain town in Bulgaria and you're going to love it. And then, oh, a year later, then you're going to go live in Tbilisi, Georgia, you know, 100 kilometers south of, of the Russian border. We would have been, you know, our, our, our brains might have short circuited at that point. And yet now it's like, yeah, Ukraine, sure, why not? Oh, let's go check out Morocco. It, it starts to feel so normal and, and easy and comfortable. And I imagine you have felt that way for years and years and years. But it's amazing how quickly it comes and, and how, what a wonderful feeling it is. We were, when we were in Armenia last weekend, we were very near the Iranian border, and our driver said, you want to go across? And, we're, I mean, we're all like, yeah, why don't we? We didn't have the visa, but we're all like, yeah, if we'd had the visa, sure, let's go across, let's go to Iran. And, I mean, that, like Michael said, you know, three years ago, I can't admit, like I said, I'm not a risk taker. I'm a cautious person, but I haven't changed, and I'm still not a risk taker, and I'm still a cautious person. What what has changed is now I know that so much of you can do so much of this without taking you know serious risks with life. And I often feel I feel safer in Tbilisi, which is like literally the safest city in Europe. But I feel safer in Europe than I do in the United States, if only for the lack of guns. And I don't you know pickpocketing. That's only an issue in tourist areas. I mean you know you need to be vigilant, but. I have never, I very, very, very rarely feel unsafe. I think the most unsafe I felt in the past year was when we were, was when we were in Switzerland and we did this, we did this hike up to a glacier and we wound up climbing up the steepest trail I've, I've ever been on where you literally looked several hundred meters down on the people below you and, and one misstep and you're toast. Other than that, it's the typical thing, Switzerland, you know, so we're, we're climbing up this mountain and I'm thinking, gosh, I don't, this is a really steep climb. And it's one of those, those hikes with the, the, the chains pound into the rocks. And so you're vertical, vertically climbing. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, do we want to do this? And at one point you're on sort of a knife's ridge. I'm thinking, oh, wow. Oh, I got, you know, I guess this is okay. And then we get up to the top and there's like families with toddlers and a woman and a walker. You know, the Swiss don't care. They're like, and there's a restaurant. And it's, I mean, I really, it was a little humiliating because the Swiss, this was like nothing for them. This, the, the, this climb was ridiculous. Um, but, you know, and I mean, I guess we also, I mean, we were in Bulgaria and our apartment caught on fire, which was, which was upsetting. But there was, really the annoying part was there were no smoke detectors or fire extinguishers. And I didn't happen to know the Bulgarian word for help. And I've already forgotten it again. We didn't, our phone, our Wi-Fi, or our, we didn't have coverage at that moment in time. So finally, what did we do? We, we texted our landlord. I use Facebook Messenger to get in touch with our landlord and say, um, would you please call the fire department? Our apartment's on fire. And Brent's outside running around the courtyard going, fire, fire. And the, the few Bulgarians that run are just sort of looking at him like he's a bit of a crazy person and walking by. Fortunately, Bulgarian buildings are mostly built out of concrete, so the fire didn't spread very far. 
uh, on our flight over to Europe this time, what, somebody was recharging a battery in first class and one of the seats got on fire. And so we had to make an emergency landing. I mean, you know, that's as Gandalf says to Bilbo, it's dangerous business stepping outside your door, you know. But, you know, that could happen. I feel like we were in more danger driving back and forth on the freeways in Seattle. We had far more close calls. That being said, crossing a, a Tbilisi street is a bit of taking your life in your hands because they do not yield for pedestrians here. Yeah, so I actually learned the trick here. Oh, so in the Ooh, beginning, do tell. So I had to cross the street every single day to get to my gym, and I thought, man, this is gonna be the life. Like this is gonna be the death of me. And yeah. there was, there seemed like there was zero crosswalks. Like a crosswalk matters. <laughs> yeah. Well, finally, actually, after a week, I realized there was a crosswalk. It just was very like unmarked, but. It, and it was, it was two blocks away, so it wasn't super convenient. But I, I did start changing my route so I can use it. But really what it is is you, you walk across, you make eye contact. That's the, I was just going to say, that's the key, yeah. And you put your hand out, and they, they will stop. But it, it is a bit scary. Like, and it's not, a, my, it's not my favorite thing about Tbilisi. I think that's something that they need to change. If, especially what's, what's really insane is... The most touristy areas, Rustavelli and the old town, the old city, those two areas need crosswalks because that's where tourists are. And those are the two places that have none. That's true. But it's true that every country and every city has a slightly different code of traffic ethics. And you just, it is a little bewildering. You have to, and it's not like there's a rule, there's not like there's a guidebook. You just sort of, and when we were in Vietnam, you were actually more unsafe if you hesitate because the whole, the only way the system works is, Everybody is constantly moving, but everybody at the same time is aware of everybody else. So they, you, you go out into traffic, whether you're on a scooter or a bike or on foot, you step out into traffic and you just sort of assume they will stop and they will stop, at least presumably they will stop. But I couldn't quite make that mental leap. I mean, they all believed they would stop and that's the moray, that's the cultural moray. But I don't know they're going to stop. So I would keep screwing everything up because I'm not willing to make that, you know, it's my life. I've only got one life. I feel like here in Tbilisi, I've got an American sense of entitlement when it comes to crossing the street. I just, oh, yeah. I'm the pedestrian. I'm a six foot one guy. I'm going out in traffic and they're going to stop. And that's almost always been the case. And it's been interesting because I will be crossing and the traffic will be stopping. And a couple of time, times I've glanced behind me and I've seen like an older uh, Georgian woman or just a local. And they're like still not crossing because yeah. they're, they're just worried about what those cars are going to do. Yeah. Uh, Fast and Furious happens to be filming here right now. Did you know that? Somebody sent me a video of one of the stunts they were doing, and I looked at it, and I said, yeah, that's just called normally crossing the street here in Tbilisi. That's nothing special. Yeah, actually, someone made that that joke about that, too, saying, like, why do they spend all this money closing off the streets? They could have just filmed any any random 3 (laughs) p.m. Oh, I love it. So, well, you guys did, you briefly mentioned that you're both writers. Is that how you're supporting yourself while living abroad? Can you tell me about that? Uh, yes. Uh, we've been, I've been a writer of fiction for more than 15 years. I write novel, young adult novels, and I also write screenplays. I was, it's kind of fun because, uh, because I'm a digital nomad, I was able to go to the filming of my last film project, which is called Project Payday, which is sort of a teenage caper movie that'll be out next year in Philadelphia. So we were there in the month of June, and I don't know that they wanted me there. I, they did. They were very, very generous and kind. But usually, you know, the screenwriter's not necessarily on set, but because I can live anywhere, I could live there. I sort of got that experience, and Hollywood is not big on paying for writers to come and, and be on set. But anyway, so I was able to be there, and that was really exciting. And, and I mean, it is true. It is also true that I sort of feel like 
I everywhere we go, I have more things to write about. I wrote a, um, I was, you know, you stay in a lot of Airbnbs and you travel a lot, and I'm sort of fascinated by the concept of. Uh, Everyone you meet, all I know about this person is is what they're presenting to me. So they could be any, they could be a mass murderer. They could have just killed somebody five minutes ago. But what they're telling me is, you know, oh, I'm just on vacation or whatever. So it was sort of, I wrote a sort of claustrophobic thriller about three characters in an Airbnb and they don't know each other's past and what, you know, what's really going on. And and I wrote a screenplay, sort of a romantic comedy called Nomads about digital nomads. It was sort of four four weddings and a funeral crossed with Eat, Pray, Love, where two characters are traveling the world and their paths keep crossing, but circumstances keep, the, keep them apart as, as they are digital nomads. And I, you know, so it is definitely becoming fodder for my writing. And I also, the irony is, I feel like I get more work done because I want to work so that I can then play, you know, and I'm working often in a co-working space and it's silly, but just the presence of other people makes me less likely to surf and waste time. I don't know. I just, so I, I am getting more done. I feel like I'm writing more things based on my travel. So it was great for my writing too. I could definitely see that. And I remember uh, I wanted to do stand-up comedy as a kind of just a, a life kind of just think bucket list item. And I, I had, they're like, okay, can you go on tonight? I'm like, um, yeah, sure. And I remember just, it was so easy just thinking about all these experiences yeah. I've had. Like, and I'm thinking in every city I go to, there's a list of things I find to, like just different or weird or strange, especially compared to American culture. And I'm like, if I ever, if I actually took the time to write these things down, I can go back to the US and have like an hour long comedy special just on the weird like quirks of every country. Absolutely. Over the course of my writing career, I've done pretty much everything under the sun. I've been an editor. I've been a novelist. Um, Brent and I co-founded a gay entertainment website with some friends, and I was editor of that, and we sold it to MTV Viacom, and I worked for them for a number of years. Uh, I've written online educational curriculum. But when we've been on the road, when we started this, we set up a website, Brent and Michael Going Places, just sort of for ourselves to chronicle what we're doing and keep track of it. But over the course of the past two years, I've become more drawn towards writing about that. And Brent and I, we pretty much knew right away we were eventually going to write a memoir about what we were doing and about our, our life together. And these past couple of weeks, I've actually turned more focusing towards that and, and working on that and building that up. And honestly, inspired by what you have done with, with your, you know, your blogging and how you've made money, um, that will never be our source of our main source of income. But it's sort of just been sitting there untapped. And so we're working on building that up and using that as a, as a platform um, for our memoir when it comes time to sell that. And there's just so many, as Brent just said, there's just so many interesting things about this, this life to write about um, that it's an endless source of inspiration. There's a line in one of my screenplays about travel that everybody on the road is either running away from something or searching for something or maybe both. And I think that's really true. I mean, you don't leave home unless you're dissatisfied. You know, you've got a reason. If you're content, you're going to stay where you are. So there's something about, you know, you don't quite fit in. It doesn't feel right. That's going to propel you out the door and on the road. And I mean, we're sort of fascinated by that. And when we did start this, we thought, yeah, eventually we will write a memoir. We'll write about this experience. And it was just a couple of months ago uh, when our plane got on fire, in fact, because it seemed like such a good opening for the book, we decided, oh, it's finally time to write the story. But what's interesting is it's, it's exactly what you said earlier, that it isn't just 
our story isn't just the story of when we left the house two years ago. It's everything that led up to it and why we were so frustrated with our careers, why we were frustrated with our lives. And what happened, you know, Michael's childhood, my childhood, my mother had this idea that the world was a scary place. She was a fearful, anxious person. And the, she communicated to me, be afraid of the world. And, you know, that I think I tried to look beyond that, but it did, it shaped my worldview. And so really the story of our travels is a story of our lives and how we met and, you know, why, why we were together and why we left. And, and then, it, and then, you know, the ending, which is, oh, this is what we were meant to be doing. This is so the right thing for us. And, and when we, sort of put that all together we realize okay now it's finally time to write the memoir I love it and I love being part of, part of your, your journey oh thank you yeah it's fun uh, I've actually been telling myself so I, I wrote a travel guide to Thailand called 12 Weeks in, Ch- in Thailand The Good Life on the Cheap and reading back on it well actually all the comments said this isn't a travel guide this is like a memoir of this 20 something year old guy going to Thailand and I realized yeah, it, it completely is. You know, I was never like, I wasn't just you know stating the facts of like this is you know combination uh, how much it costs, and I think that like all of us, especially the ones that you know travel and have been through a lot, had had unique circumstances, we have something to share. You know, and I guess depending on how good of a writer you are and how interesting the story is, if other people would actually read it or pay money for it, but I do think that. Pretty much every single person I've met on this journey could write a book if they wanted to, and probably should, even if it's just for themselves. Yeah, it's funny. We've been reading a lot of travel memoirs, and they all they all have the same formula, which is somebody's desperately unhappy, they make an abrupt break, and then they find themselves. But I mean, you know, that's what travel is. That's literally what travel is. Yeah, and the thing about, like, at least living in Thailand, it's, it's probably the same everywhere in the world, is most expats... Mm, okay, I don't want to say expats, but most people that who are living in another country, especially one that is completely foreign to their own, uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're hiding, you know, we're running from something that yeah. we didn't like back home. Yep. Uh, or maybe we're chasing, we're chasing something else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's changing now where you have more kind of just normal people that were actually pretty happy back home. And they're just like, oh, well, I, you know, was happy. I was you know, I had money and I was like, I had the freedom to do this. So now I'm doing this. So it, I think it is changing as it's more of an option as it becomes. And as it becomes easier, I mean, it just is, I hate to take away from our achievements, but it is so much easier. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And it's also more socially acceptable now. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if someone lived in Thailand, you're like, why? Like this guy must be a weird guy. You know, why is he living in Thailand? <laughs> you know, well, here's the question for you. Uh, so we were debating this in our trip to Armenia, the four of us. It's like, do you think people are the same all over or do you think people are different? You know what I mean? As you meet, as you meet the locals, is everybody basically, is everybody loves their kids or is it, no, there really are fundamental differences. Mm, I think it's a bit of both. I think in the core, people are very similar, right? Yeah. Like we, we want food, shelter, family. Yeah. But I also do think that in different like in every country they were like distinctly different it's nature versus nurture i think it's half half i i I really do like i i don't think it's just because the culture is different the religion is different or the or the language is different i do think it's something in their in people's blood and dna how they grew up maybe the food or their water or their environment but you know culture and especially religion does make a huge impact 
because one of us is obsessed with uh, amusement parks, I'll leave it unsaid which one of us it is. We, <laughs> we visited a number of amusement parks, and just last night we were up at Matsminda Park here in, in Tbilisi. And what always strikes me in those places is how same how much the same people are. You see parents walking around with their kids, wanting some fun entertainment, you know, buying them a treat, laughing, and just having a good time. And and. I think, as you said, I think it's some of both, but I do think at the core, we're a lot, listen, we just want, we want to be happy. We want our kids to have a little bit better opportunity than we did. We don't want to have to worry about keeping a roof overhead or, or the food coming in or, you know, whether the big country next door is, is going to come storming down at some point. But both the similarities and the differences are what make it interesting. Finding out, oh my gosh, this person is so like me in, in ways that are fundamental, even superficially we're so different. At the same time, you're sort of fascinated by, oh, my God, this culture is so different. That's the way they look at it. And you sort of feel your – now, in defense of amusement parks, um, <laughs> now you know I, I love amusement parks, but I'm cheap and I hate people. So you go to Vietnam, for example, and there are these fantastic, modern, cool amusement parks that are empty, at least when we were there, and that cost – you know, five to ten dollars by Western standards, and so that's pretty awesome. That's that's paradise for me. Okay, well, the one place in Vietnam that's not super crowded. Yeah, right. Oh, it was it was weird. It's it's an amusement park south of Hoi An, and we didn't know what to expect when we went there. It was it's part amusement park, it's part water park, and there's a, a cultural center aspect to it. And I swear, when we got there. There were 100 people in the whole park. Some of the water rides, we'd walk up to them. The attendant would run over. He'd turn on the water so that the slide would get wet enough that we could go down it. And it was just, it was very surreal. But there were a bunch of amusement parks. There was the Bana Hills and there was the park downtown. Yeah, Bana Hills had a fair few people. Though. Yeah, and every single street is an amusement park, basically. Yes, well, yes. <laughs> every taxi ride is a, is a roller coaster yes. ride. <laughs> yeah, we were driving home from an amusement park once and they were caught in like a monsoon. You know? And so we're, the, the, the water is like six inches deep. And there's a downed power line, you know, across the road. There's a tree and also a downed power line. And I'm thinking the cab driver is going to turn around. Instead, he just hops out of the car, you know, ankle deep in the water, tosses the power line. I mean, the li- I didn't know. Presumably it wasn't live. But I'm like, are you kidding? And then we drive through the foliage of the tree, toss the power line to one side. And, and it's like they are more comfortable. They're a lot more comfortable with risk. And I, sadly, I do think life is also a little cheaper in some of these heavily populated yeah. poorer countries. And that, I mean, on one hand, I get frustrated by the litigious nature of the United States, you know, that we are helicopter parents and, you know, everybody's sued and, and play areas need to be perfectly safe. Whereas you see play areas in, you know, the Ukraine or Bulgaria and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, but on the other hand, kids learn, you know, they fall, they break their arm and they learn not to do that again. Yeah. feels like, um, but it, I, so I don't, you know, again, I don't want to generally be judgy because this is not my culture. But I guess I can have a personal opinion. And sometimes I do think, you know, you see the family of six on a scooter in Thailand. Yeah. Two toddlers, you know, in one arm and no helmets. And it's like, oh, is that really the best possible choice you could be making? Well, I don't think it's necessarily being judgy to look at Thailand, which is a perfect example. And you literally do see a family of six. I just read an article in the New York Times that Thailand has got the second highest death rate on the road in the world. And that's just, it's sad to see that and, and you know, to know that those people are, are suffering in a way they, hopefully in a few years, they won't be as they modernize those things. And I just want to say to your digital nomad listeners, so we when we were in... 
um, Thailand, we didn't get a scooter. We were like the only of our friends. We were just doing the tuk-tuk thing, and we were hiking, and, and we did a little bit of biking. And people thought we were crazy. We got nothing but grief from our digital nomad friends, you know. And they'd say, oh, you guys are so, eh, you got you to gotta live a little. You got to get a scooter. And I swear to God, literally every friend that we know has been in a scooter accident, some of which, you know, some of whom um, very seriously. And so all I'm saying is think twice about those scooters. Yeah, that's a that's a hard, that's a really hard one because part of me, the one of my favorite things about Thailand yeah. is the freedom of being able to ride a scooter. Yeah. It's the most convenient thing in the world. You know, you, you bypass all the traffic. Yeah. You can literally park anywhere you can literally park at the front door of the restaurant some in the restaurant if you really wanted to but three of our friends who were with us in thailand since we were there and when we were there february march have been in accidents yeah it's a thing. so i agree it's 100 percent a reality that it is unsafe yeah. and people get in accidents and it's a real thing and the worst thing about it is people kind of brush it under yeah. the rug because they don't want to talk about it they don't want to admit to it uh I'm kind of kind of in the middle where what, what I do is I say, you know what, I don't want to completely give up the freedom, the convenience of it because I do like it. But at the same time, I'm not going to put myself in adverse risk for no reason. So what I do is I get a, I have a scooter, and I but I only ride it within Neiman which is, and within kind of the old city. So I'm never going more than 20 miles an hour. I'll always wear some kind of helmet, even though it's you know, not like a crazy full face helmet. I have something to protect my head. And for me, I'm like, you know what? That is the extent of safety I'm willing to to go. I'm not going to wear a heavy, hot motorcycle jacket. I know I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to wear a, a heavy, full-face, hot helmet either. But what I can do is not ride on freeways and highways. What I can do, you know, uh, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to drive drunk. I'm not going to drive stupid. And I'm going to, you know, make sure I have the proper training before I do it. And I think that's the problem is people, because everyone else makes it seem so easy, people assume that there's no risk because you know, all these other backpackers are doing it yeah. without any training. Well, then, as you, when we had dinner last week, you talked about your background in scuba diving, and we just had a conversation with another, another friend. It's like you can scuba dive in Thailand. You know, they give you 15 minutes training, and you know, I took a I took a two month course, and I mean, it is true. I I, I don't like thinking that when you give people freedom, they're going to screw it up. But it is there's truth to that. We talked about this too, um, and it does feel like you know you need. To be, you need to. I mean, I this comes naturally to me because I'm the neurotic, nervous one. But, um, but that's okay. I mean, I, I think you know you need to be cautious. You need to think. You need to think about the choices you make. Well, I just feel like what you said that you have to get the training and do it. And, and as you said, people don't talk about it. When you get to Thailand, people say, "Oh yeah, just go down here and get a scooter." And we had friends who literally said, "I've never been a scooter before, but sure, I'll do it." And most of the time they were fine, but oftentimes they weren't, and they would get in scrapes. And, well, and every friend has been in an accident. Yeah, it's it's. We all have to decide for ourselves. Brent and I have chosen not to ride scooters in Thailand. Yeah, and I think like knowing that th there are ways to to go around like w without it. You know, you can live in the Neiman area. Or you can live in like a very walkable area. You could you can you know take taxis everywhere and, and not you know, cheap out on it and say, you know what, that's just part of the cost. I'm going to take the taxi. So yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely possible. I do miss the scooter days. It's, it's actually getting harder. They're cracking down on it more. They're checking, they're taking, checking more licenses and taking more bribes. So 
unfortunately, I guess maybe good for Brent, but the scooter culture is actually going to be ending soon in Thailand. So that is one chapter that's going to kind of close. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's been a really uh, interesting having you two on. I, I think this has been a really fun episode. Thanks for us too. We've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, good. Um, wh- how can people find you? We are all over social media. Our website is brentandmichaelaregoingplaces.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Brent and Michael are going places. Very simple. We're on Twitter at Brent and Michael. Just Brent and Michael. Twitter, we're just at Brent and Michael. Um, we write a, a biweekly column for LGBTQ Nation, so feel free to read us there. Um, we love hearing from people, so contact us anytime. Um, happy to answer any questions, especially for the LGBT folks out there who are wondering about this and thinking about doing it. Um, we're happy to share our experiences. Yeah, very cool. So thank you so much, Michael and Brent. Thank you, Johnny. See you guys. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.